there is an outline. There are Bibles in the foyer if that would be helpful. And there is an outline. And if you've looked at the outline, you'll see that there are a lot of references there. Um, I will only be touching on them very briefly in the talk, but they're there so that you can uh, go back over them, uh, test what I've said, but also reflect on them. Because knowing God is a bit like the rest of life. The more you put in, the more you get out of it. And so if, in addition to kind of sitting and listening now, you actually take that and read and ponder those references, uh, your knowledge of your God will grow. Uh, good. Let's ask God now to help us uh, with his word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, in your mercy uh, we do pray that we will grow in knowledge of you, our God. We pray that uh, we would come to trust who you say you are and so be refreshed in knowing you and comforted as we face life. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us to receive this word as your word, the word of the living and true God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, looking uh, back, uh, 2017 would seem to have been a pretty tough year for public Christianity. Of course, whether that is the case or not in reality, it's easy for us to feel that in the public sphere, the church has gone backwards over the last 12 months. I mean, there have been a number of high-profile debates about moral issues such as same-sex marriage or voluntary assisted suicide in which the abandonment by both the power brokers and the majority of our fellow citizens of a Christian morality, a morality that was publicly advocated by churches, has been obvious. Oh, and then there are the ongoing discussions around sexual identity and behaviour, especially as it relates to its treatment in schools, where the defenders of a Christian understanding are often misrepresented and ridiculed. And yes, 2017 saw the public shaming of much institutional Christianity by the revelations and finding of the Royal Commission into Institutional Child Abuse. And so where churches have, because of our history, felt entitled to be listened to, we actually now see that they're not listened to but treated with hostility and suspicion. Uh, where Christians may have before thought of themselves as mainstream and acceptable, we sense an increasing reluctance amongst many to associate with Christianity. It's easy, it seems, isn't it, that uh, to have this sense that the Christian faith is becoming more marginal, more marginal to public life and is being actively marginalised by some. And then you combine that with the growing presence of other religions in our society and an increasingly confident and vocal atheism in the public space and it's easy to feel that the Christian cause is on the wane in our society. For believers, even believers, to start to buy into the death of Christianity in the West story that some have been telling for decades now. And so many of us, I think, do have that sense that the world is changing and not changing for the better and that we're being threatened by the chaos and disorder of materialistic lies, unbridled greed and lust masquerading as liberty. 
And we know, of course, if we read our Bibles, say Revelation 12 and 13, that behind all these things is the implacable anger of the devil against God's people. And so all things considered, as we move from 2017 into 2018, it's easy for believers to become anxious about the future, anxious for ourselves about the hostility we may have to face, about being the odd one out in our workplace or families, about the impact that being different may have on our employment or advancement, anxious for our integrity, Oh, anxious for our children, about the pressures they may have to face at school or from their peer group, or about the kind of world that they will live, that they will grow up to live in. Or anxious for our society, as we wonder just where it's going and see both its confusion and its determination to disregard God, to get as far as possible away from any Christian heritage growing. All of which, of course, makes the beginning of 2018 a good time to turn to Psalm 46 and remember God's commitment to his people individually and collectively and to take comfort and courage from the knowledge that God is with his people, with you if you're a believer and with us as a congregation of God's people. God is our refuge and strength, says the psalmist, an ever-present help in trouble. God is. Three things as we look at this psalm. Who is this God the psalmist declares to be with his people? What is it to have this God as our strength and refuge? And finally, who are the people who can say that the psalmist God is our God, is our strength and refuge. So firstly, who is the God whom the psalmist proclaims is with his people, the refuge and strength of his people? And that's an important question, isn't it? For all the comfort any can have from knowing that God is with him or her with them is actually dependent on who God is. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, if I was walking with you down a dark Melbourne alley when three men in hoodies and with iron bars started to move towards us and I said, don't worry, I'm with you. You might think that's a nice thing to say, but it probably wouldn't give you much comfort. In fact, you know, you would probably be hoping you could run faster than me and that they would be delayed by beating me up, right? But if a fully equipped member of the SAS said it to you, you know, that man giant, what's his name, Robert Smith, you know, if he said it to you, completely equipped, he said, don't worry, Neil, I'm with you. He must have a deep voice being that big, right? <laughs> you, you probably think, sweet, I want to see this, right? So who is the psalmist God? The God who gives him such confidence. Well, he identifies him as the Lord, the God of Jacob. That is, he's the God of Israel, the God who has made himself known in his dealings with the people of Israel from the time of their forebears, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And it's good for us to know, good to us to remember who this God says he is, who this God has shown himself to be in his dealings with his people. So let's just run through that briefly. That's what the references are for. And firstly, this God is a God who says he has no limits. 
When Moses, the great prophet of Israel, asked God for his name, he says, verse 14, I am who I am. That's what you decided the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. That is, the Lord knows no limits outside himself to his being, to his might, to his rule. No one can make him be anything other than he is. And that includes matter. His eternal, invisible, personal spirit. Matter does not limit him as it does us. And so he is not limited in space in where he's present. So there is no place where he is not present. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The heavens, the depths, the dawn, the side of the sea? No, even the darkness. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. God is not limited in his presence and he is not limited in time or by time. There is no time when he is not present, no time when he has to rest, no time when he is not on the job and he's not partly present with half his mind on the job distracted by other concerns. He is fully wholly present in each and every place and time, fully wholly present to his people, always present to his people. They are never outside or beyond his capacity to be with them wholly and completely. I am who I am. Oh yes, and I am who I am knows no limits on his life and so he will always be always able to keep his word. He knows no limits on his knowledge for he's immediately present in all times and places. He knows no limits on his power. The Lord does whatever pleases him. He will never fail to do what he said he'll do. Now, the psalmist actually in, in Psalm 46 uh, focuses on two aspects of our experience of life two aspects of our experience of life uh, that threaten the peace and security of God's people. And he wants us to think about these in the light of the Lord being the God of his people. And so firstly he speaks of uh, the destructive forces of nature. We will not fear though the earth give way, the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. You know, nothing reminds us of just how vulnerable and powerless we are, better than an earthquake and a tsunami that accompanies it. Irresistible, uncontrollable force that shakes the foundations of our lives. Everything we take for granted in an earthquake is shaken. Oh, and secondly, there are the destructive forces of unruly humanity experienced in particular in the warfare and violence of the nations that bring such devastation to all caught up in it. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. Now the psalmist reminds, raises those things to remind us that the Lord, the God of Jacob, because he is who he is, rules over all. And think of God's relation to creation. He has created all that is 
by a word. The creation story is a record of God speaking. And as the psalmist says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. Creation comes into being by the Lord's word and it is sustained and ruled by his word. He really is in charge. He causes the sun to rise and he sends the rain. And it's not just the macro structures of creation, the big rhythms of life that God rules. He is across the detail. Our Lord says not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of your father's care, but by your father's will. And so if the earth were to give way, if there is a huge destructive earthquake and a tsunami that threatens to engulf and shake the very foundations of our lives, the Lord is in charge. That disorder doesn't surprise or threaten his rule. His rule is always bringing order out of chaos. And he's in control of creation, whether it's the movement of tectonic plates or the rotation of the earth around the sun or an Indian miner falling dead in the heat. He knows it. He rules. It is all subject to him. And the Lord is in charge of the rise and fall of human kingdoms. He has shown that in his dealings with his people. Human motivations and decisions are so complex. There are so many factors in what's done in human life in history that it's sometimes hard to know what's going on and what's going on. But the testimony of scripture, which gives God's view into what we could not otherwise discern, is that God is in charge directing the affairs of nations according to his judgments and purposes. Let's think of some of the incidents in a sense that scripture deals with and reveals to us. So scripture's clear that the Lord can raise up a Pharaoh to demonstrate his glory even in Pharaoh's stubbornness. Verse 16, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Oh, the Lord, if you're reading Isaiah, can uh, bring the armies of the Assyrian king Sennacherib to the walls of Jerusalem and then send them away. He's in control of the decisions of great international power. So he's determined their rise. He says to the king of Assyria, have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. In days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass that you have turned fortified cities into piles of stone. And yet he also can effortlessly turn him away from Jerusalem, direct him, just like somebody directs a horse. I'll put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return by the way you came, he says to the Assyrian king. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh. Oh yes, God can bring Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest ruler of his day, to madness so that Nebuchadnezzar would come in his pride to acknowledge his rule, to acknowledge that all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He, God, does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No hand can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? He can take the kingdom from Nebuchadnezzar and can give it back to him. Oh, yes, and the Lord can write the sentence of Nebuchadnezzar's successor, on the wall, declare that he will lose the kingdom. Equally so, the Lord, we're told, can raise up Cyrus. And Cyrus's life story is remarkable. 
He didn't look like the person who would become the first king of the great empire of the Medes and Persians. But he did. And he did because the Lord raised him up to save his people, to bring them back to Jerusalem from Babylon, even though Cyrus neither knew nor acknowledged the Lord. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him. I summon you, verse 4, by name and bestow on you a title of honour, though you do not acknowledge me. Now, there are even more examples, aren't there? The Lord can trap in the book of Esther. We see a malevolent Haman in his own schemes through a king recalling an event before Haman ever came to power. Oh, the Lord can use the decisions of the powerful as we confess in the gospel, to further his purpose of saving the world through his son. Though they didn't intend to serve anything other than their own self-interest in getting rid of a troublemaker, yet they did what the Lord's power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The Lord rules over the affairs of nations. <laughs> the outcome of their decisions and their activities serves his purpose. That's what scripture says. That what we see in these particular events is actually true of all human affairs. Even when we don't know uh, the purpose of God, even when that purpose is not revealed to us, he rules over the nations. And he does today. He rules over China, the US, North Korea, their leaders. They are all subject to him. As the author of Proverbs says, a king's heart, a ruler's heart, is like streams of water in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. We need to know that because if that's true of kings, it's true of parliamentarians and employers and customers of landlords and lecturers. The God of Jacob rules. He rules nature. He rules human might and wickedness. And he's made clear in his raising Jesus from the dead that he rules over death. The death cannot withstand him, represents no limits on his rule. And wonderfully, the psalmist tells us that the Lord is determined that he be glorified in his rule over the nations and the earth, in his dealings with them. He's determined that in his dealings with them he'll be acknowledged as God, the Lord. That in his dealings with them that all will see the truth that he is the God he has revealed himself to be. They'll see that his character is true, his purpose is fulfilled, his promises kept, he will be exalted. The psalmist God is the Lord Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the ruler of the nations. So what is it to have this God as your refuge and strength the one in whom you can find shelter and protection. Well, the psalmist gives us a picture in verses 4 to 6 of the psalm. When he speaks of the city of God, that is, when he speaks of God's people gathered in God's presence. And, and remember, that's, that's actually where we are. The refrain of this psalm is that God of, the Lord of hosts is with us. So there is a stream, river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. 
God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. There is a river. See, God is telling us that to have God as our refuge is to have access to ever-renewed life. This picture of a river flowing from the presence of God originally comes from the Garden of Eden from which flowed the four rivers to water the earth. But the picture is actually developed in Ezekiel as a river flowing from the temple, from the very presence of God, a river that, well, gives life to everything where it flows. The psalmist is saying that to have God as your refuge, to be in his presence, is to have life. A life that doesn't depend on your own strength and resources, that actually doesn't depend on the resources of this creation, but on God himself. Life that flows from God. Oh, and to have God as your refuge means to have access to God, for he chooses to dwell among his people. And so your prayers will always be heard. He'll hear you and know you. Oh, to have the Lord as your refuge is to be secure, verse 5. There it says, God is within her. She will not fall. When, verse 6, the earth itself is convulsing and powerful kingdoms fall, the city of God, those living in God's presence will not. They will stand firm. They'll be shaken. What they have built will remain when all else crumbles. And, of course, to have the Lord as your refuge is to be able to rely on timely help. God will help her at break of day. A break of day was when the assault was often launched by a besieging army. It was actually a time of great danger and threat. But God will be there at the right time, the needed time. He won't come too late. He won't appear after the attack to help you deal with the rubbish. He won't be absent. He will be there at the right time with you in the danger. The psalmist actually summarises that security in verses 7 and 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Those who can say of this God, he is our God, can say that. Those who can say God is their refuge and strength are those then who know and can rely on God's commitment to them, who can know that they're never on their own, never left to their own resources, never left unprotected, from the hostile forces that threaten their life. That presence of God with his people is the security and joy of God's people, their praise and hope. Knowing who the Lord is means it's wonderful to be able to say the Lord Almighty is with us. So who can say it? Who are the people who can say with confidence, God, the almighty creator, the ruler of history, the God who is, is our refuge? Who can say the Lord is with us? Who can say the Lord is with me? That's actually the most important question, isn't it? So in a sense, let's break it down to three questions. What is the sense of our? How can the psalmist say the Lord is our help? And how can we today say it and know it to be true for ourselves? 
So what's the sense of our when somebody says God is our God? When we remember who God is, of course, we realise that the word our doesn't have the sense of possession in terms of belonging to me, accountable to me, to be used by me as I will. Not our in the sense of our car or our home. Oh, and our doesn't have the sense that we use it in when we say our cricketers. You know, our cricketers have won a test or whatever they have done. We tend not to say it when we say our cricketers. We say those cricketers have lost a test, but our cricketers. No, no, God's not someone who represents us and does something on our behalf. Rather, our speaks of the reality of relationship. It acknowledges a relationship. An imperfect analogy, it's a bit like the way children can speak of our parents. They don't own their parents. They didn't initiate the relationship with their parents. In fact, in a sense, they belong to their parents and they've come into a relationship at their parents' initiative. Yet that relationship's real with privileges and responsibilities. To say our God is to say that we have a relationship with God. But how can any creature say of this God who made the earth with a word, who rules over all the affairs of human history, who's also holy and just, that they have a relationship with this God? Well, because God, because God is. And God freely chooses to enter into relationship, freely commits himself to it, but only where he freely chooses to commit himself to the relationship because he's the Lord. He rules and no one rules him. No one can make him do or be anything he does not will. Because of who God is and who we humans are, it's a relationship that God has to initiate that God has to bring into being. And that's actually what we see when we think about how the psalmist can confidently say, God is our refuge and strength. You see, he says that because he's one of the descendants of Jacob, one of the people of Israel, the people with whom God entered into a formal relationship with at Mount Sinai, a covenant. As part of that covenant, God said that he would be the God of the people of Israel that they would be his people. I will walk among you, Leviticus 26, 12, and be your God and you will be my people. Because of God's initiative, they can call him our God. But how did that relationship come about? How did Israel become God's people? By being good? By doing everything God had said? By being particularly insightful or wise? Well, no, none of those things. It's only because of God's initiative of grace, because God chose their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, and because God decided to love them. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of the peoples. It was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors. It's because God's decided to love them and to freely keep the freely made promises that he gave to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And because the Lord shows them in love, they became his people through his great saving work in delivering them from slavery in Egypt. And having rescued them, he then entered into that relationship with them, that relationship that allows them to say, he is our God, allows them to know that, he is committed 
to them as his people. The people of Israel, the psalmist, could call God our God because of God's electing grace and his gracious saving action. And that's the only way any can have relationship with God, God's free choice and God's rescue of them from bondage. And yet we know for all that the psalmist says here, this people fell away from God. God actually did bring them into judgment, abandoned them to their enemies because they went and worshipped other gods. And yet believers, believers in Jesus, today can know this psalm as their own, can say these words as their own because of God's gracious choice and his even greater rescue of them because of that choice. Yes, they've not just been rescued from Egypt, they've been rescued from bondage to sin and death. That's right, believers in Jesus are God's covenant people. This is John 6, because of God's initiative of grace. They are those given to him by the Father. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Oh, and we are, because of the Father's gift, the beneficiaries of the saving work of the Son, that death which brings into being the new covenant where all who have faith in Jesus are forgiven and made God's people, where God remembers our sins no more. We are set free from sin because Jesus is determined to save all those given to him by the Father. He pours out his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And when we see that, when we see that believers can say of the Lord that he is our God because of the death of his Son, we are also brought to recognise the depth and strength of God's commitment to his people of our Saviour's commitment to his people and know the comfort and courage that brings. We should know the depth of that commitment. It's a commitment that Scripture says starts in eternity, chosen in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love he predestined us for adoption. It's a commitment that is realised through the death of God's Son, the Good Shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. And it's a commitment that we are assured will find its fullness in being joined to Jesus forever, where all that is his will become ours as he presents his people to himself as his radiant bride. That we can say with the psalmist, our God, that believers in Jesus can say with the psalmist, our God, has not come about by accident. And it's not the product of some emotional decision or your upbringing, although those may, they may have been involved in your coming to faith. Ultimately, it's because of God's determined and deliberate initiative in grace to save and to save you fully through the death of his son. And this is a commitment experienced now as we enjoy, in a sense, the beginning of the fulfilment of what the psalmist spoke about as we enjoy God's presence with his people. You see, what was for them his presence through a sign, the temple, is for a believers the experience of his presence with us now 
through his spirit. God himself comes to make his home with us through his spirit. God is present amongst us by spirit individually and collectively. A presence that assures us of his fatherly love, a presence that is determined to change us into the likeness of his son, a presence that is the source of new life as God shares his own inexhaustible life with us. As we know those rivers of living water, rivers of living water through the gift of God's spirit as we are renewed in life through the life of God. To be able to say, God is our God, and believers can say that, is security and hope. For the Lord who is with us has committed to keeping his people, to actually make sure that no one denies them what he intends for them, plucks them from his hand. And we know Christ is vigilant to watch over his flock and keep them. Believers in Jesus, because of God's electing love and his great saving work on the cross in giving his son, can say the Lord Almighty is with us, can say with confidence God is our strength and refuge. If you're a believer in Jesus, you can say that. God is your strength and refuge. And so that also means you can say as you think of the year ahead, therefore we will not fear. Notice it's not the Lord is with us and therefore we will expect a peaceful and prosperous life. It's not the Lord is with us and therefore we'll expect to have power and influence in society. It's not the Lord is with us and so everything will work out just as I wanted. But the Lord is with us. Therefore I will not fear. Even when things are not working out the way I want even when the world seems out of control and threatening, even as ambitious and violent people pursue their plans, I won't fear because my hope is in God's promise and purpose and presence and he rules. Where we are his, where we know God is our God because he saved us in Christ, we don't need to fear for his church. He's determined to present her to himself spotless and blameless. We don't need to fear for ourselves because, as Paul says, if God has given his son for us, if God's for us, who can be against us? Oh, we don't need to fear because no one will be able to frustrate God's good plan that we be raised up by his son to eternal life. We don't need to fear a growing secularism as if it can do anything to derail God's plans for his people do anything that he does not permit for the good of his people. We don't need to fear hostility as if it will not serve his good purpose for us. We don't need to fear the powers of this world. Oh, we're weak to resist down ourselves, but God has said none will snatch us from his hand. We don't even need to fear death. This is Paul speaking on trial at the mercy of an idolatrous government. What did he know? He knew the Lord's presence. The Lord stood at my side and gave me strength. And he knew the Lord would be faithful to his promise. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So pause. And hopefully you've done it already. Pause. But think about the things that you are anxious about as you consider the coming year. Just think about those things now. 
government's direction, your children, God's judgment on a proud people, loss of work, hardness of your own heart, ridicule from family and friends, people's hostility to you at work. Oh, maybe it's more personal. You fear that if you live Jesus' way, you'll be used or that you'll just be exhausted. Think of what you fear in the coming year and then say to yourself, if you're a believer, because I belong to God's people through trusting Jesus, his son, because I can say God is my God because of his electing love, and powerful saving work through the death of his son. God is my strength and refuge, my present help. That's true, believer in Jesus. The creator of heaven and earth, the Lord Almighty, has made himself your God through giving his son for you. And he is present with you through his spirit. God is my strength and refuge. Trust his word. And as you contemplate the year to come, say, therefore, I will not fear. I know he will keep his promise to me. I know he will give me timely help. I know that his life can ever refresh my life. I will not fear. And saying that, Resolve to live a life freed of fear, where you live confidently, confessing Jesus as Lord, obeying him in all things. Live confidently, conscious that each day you are in the presence of your God. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We pray that these would not just be idle words to us. That as we think of the year ahead, as we sense in our own hearts our anxieties and fears, we pray in your mercy that we would remember who you are, that our God is the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord and ruler of the nations. And we pray in your mercy that we would remember how we can call upon you as our God because of your eternal, electing, gracious decision in love to call us to yourself because you have given your son for us in love. Help us to feel your commitment to us. And we pray, gracious Father, help us to know that you are with us and we live in the power of your spirit and the presence of your spirit. And so we pray, help us to live lives which show we do not fear. Help us to live lives of joyous obedience to our Lord Jesus and joyous confession of him as Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.